You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The FBI says reboot your routers. Data extortion hits Canadian banks. The Cobalt Gang is back. 51% attacks fiddle with cryptocurrencies. The backswap banking Trojan is tough to detect. Coca-Cola discloses data theft by a former employee. Cavassier gets 10 years. That's the hacker, not the cognac. Facebook continues to work on its content moderation. And Papua New Guinea may block the platform for a month of study. And NATO studies humor very seriously. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, May 29, 2018. The FBI has issued a formal warning against VPN Filter, the Russia-linked campaign that's affecting routers. The Bureau advises everyone to reboot their routers. Their warning is short and to the point. Quote, The FBI recommends any owner of small office and home office routers reboot the devices to temporarily disrupt the malware and aid the potential identification of infected devices. Owners are advised to consider disabling remote management settings on devices and secure with strong passwords and encryption when enabled. Network devices should be upgraded to the latest available versions of firmware. So there you have it, direct from the feds. In what appears to be an extortion attempt, pay up or everybody gets to see your customers' data, two Canadian banks were hit by hackers over the weekend. The Bank of Montreal and the Simply Financial Direct Banking brand of the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce are believed to have been affected. Some 90,000 customers' data was apparently accessed by the attackers. The information exposed included both personal and financial information, In both cases, the hackers contacted the bank Sunday and told them they'd stolen the data. The motive appears to be extortion. The hackers have threatened to release the data online. The affected banks are working with law enforcement agencies. The Cobalt Gang is back at work despite its leader's arrest in Spain two months ago. Researchers at security firm Group IB have found spear-phishing emails from the thieves pretending to be alerts from Kaspersky Lab. Employees of Russian and Eastern European banks are being targeted. The email is nicely, if bogusly, branded. It tells the victim that they've detected unspecified illicit activity from the victim's machine, and it threatens the victim with actions that will be taken against their employer's online resources if they don't click the link provided and explain themselves within 48 hours. Needless to say, clicking the link is not a good thing to do. It will install the Cobint Trojan. A wave of attacks hit cryptocurrencies Verge, Monocoin, and Bitcoin Gold last week, inflicting more than $20 million in damages. The incidents are said to have been 51% attacks. In a 51% attack against a blockchain, The attackers are a miner or a group of miners who have obtained control of more than half of a network's mining hash rate. Doing so gives them ability to reverse transactions and thus to double-spend coins. Motherboard notes that the attacks came shortly after the airing of an episode of the TV show Silicon Valley, in which the character's fictional cryptocurrency Pied Piper coin not only flopped its ICO but sustained a 51% attack as well. 
This is either coincidence, simultaneous invention, or inspiration, a case of life imitating art. CenturyLink recently released their 2018 threat report, sharing the insights they've gained from their perspective as a major telecommunications company and provider of security services. Mike Benjamin is Senior Director of Threat Research at CenturyLink. The report that we developed uh, looks broadly at threats across all categories, goes beyond botnets and DDoS, uh, and really tries to break down the trends we've seen in terms of geographies uh, and volume of attacks on the Internet. And so uh, we were able to track throughout 2017 195,000 threats per day, so threatening hosts in the Internet that we tagged as malicious in some manner. Uh, we saw them interacting with over 104 unique, excuse me, 104 million unique victims. It's hmm. pretty massive impact to the overall global internet, and uh, it, it comes as no shock. But it's important for everyone to be reminded that the top source of the malicious traffic was the United States, and so a lot of folks tend to believe that the the maliciousness comes from places with maybe. Uh, less stringent laws and other things. And, and it may be that the people with their fingers on the keyboards were in those locations, but the actual servers, infrastructure, endpoints doing the attacking, uh, we, we saw coming from the United States as the top uh, origination point. Was this surprising to you all, or did this reflect the type of things that you track every day? Yeah, it was, it was in line with the data that we've been collecting actually for a number of years. And so very consistent where we see um, large economies with large infrastructures of available footprint and a lot of bandwidth to be able to support uh, reliable attack infrastructure, so to speak. And in terms of, of uh, trends for, from the report, since this is not your first year doing this report, are you seeing any any shifts, any evolution in the way that these, uh, these are being uh, spun up? Well, with the focus on IoT DDoS attacks this time, we were able to share quite a bit more granularity and visibility into to that threat area. And, and what we saw from a trend perspective was actually a very interesting trend around which malware families were utilized. Uh, if you were to read what's going uh, to publish and what people are sharing, you'd see a lot based on the Mirai malware. And uh, interestingly enough, we actually saw more command and control of these botnets sourced on the Gafgen malware. Uh, we found that it was, in some cases, easier for the malicious actors to deploy, uh, quicker for them to stand it up, and and of course, as we work to take them down and impact them, uh, the, the actor has wasted less time standing it up uh, before we force them to go on and stand up another one. Now, in terms of, of people's ability to defend themselves against DDoS, where do we stand with that? Is DDoS still the serious threat that it was in the past few years? So yes and no. Uh, DDoS attacks, on even a small scale, can impact certain infrastructures. Uh, we tend to look at it both from our customer perspective as well as the Internet as an overall infrastructure. And we'd be happy to report that from the IoT botnet perspective, uh, the work we've done, along with a number of other partners, to impact and track these botnets, they haven't grown to the scale that we've seen in the past in order to knock down uh, critical parts of the Internet, as we saw in the multi-terabit attacks. However, the sort of overall spectrum of DDoS attacks also includes spoofed attacks, reflected attacks that may not be sourced from these particular botnet types. Uh, so we saw just recently this spring attacks that were based on the UDP reflection and amplification vector with memcached D. Uh, a number of people were using the lightweight caching 
uh, service as part of their web app development. They were left exposed to the internet and they had a, a sizable amplification vector. And, and we saw well over a terabit attack launched through that vector, uh, taking down GitHub. And so still a, a sizable impact to the internet that can be sourced by DDoS attacks. But we, we are happy to say that at least from the IoT DDoS um, botnet perspective, we, along with the broader community, have been able to minimize the impact that that has had. That's Mike Benjamin from CenturyLink. Security firm ESET warns of a new, harder-to-detect banking trojan, BackSwap. It works entirely within the Windows graphical user interface and avoids the more usual browser process injection. Coca-Cola disclosed that it sustained a data breach. A former employee took a hard drive containing about 8,000 employees' records. The incident happened in September of 2017, but Coca-Cola delayed disclosure and notification of affected persons at the request of the law enforcement agencies who were investigating. Facebook continues to struggle with content moderation. Motherboard publishes guidelines the platform has given its content moderators on how to handle postings that feature alt-right appropriated cartoon character Pepe the Frog. Pepe in an SS uniform? Nine, Danka. Papua New Guinea is considering blocking Facebook access across the country as it looks into Facebook's reach, influence, and operations and tries to get a handle on the platform's possible use to disseminate fake news. Finally, did you hear the one about the NATO staff that looked into humor as a tool for information operations? They found it in the janitor's closet. It's a subversive buffer. Well, okay, sorry, that's a lousy punchline. But then we've just read the study, and we weren't around for the research that was doubtless conducted at the Chuckle Hut in Riga, the Latvian city where the Atlantic Alliance's Strategic Communications Center of Excellence is located. We often have occasion to talk about information operations, and humor is a subtopic whose time has come. So take the Center of Excellence, please. When you're on the NATO staff, every joke looks like aggression, incongruity, or arousal safety. Seriously, it's an interesting study, but it's totally devoid of any actual jokes. And trust us, our joke desk has been through all 156 pages without a snort or guffaw. Western readers unfamiliar with Russian TV might be surprised to learn of the Russian proclivity for situation comedy and late-night talk show-style zingers, not to mention the Uncle Vanya drive-time talk radio. But come on, Riga, toss us a bone. The analytic framework is great, but how's about some laughs? This reminds us, as so many things do, of the history of philosophy. There's a long tradition of looking at jokes along the Baltic coast. It goes back to the great East Prussian philosopher Immanuel Kant, who shared a bunch of groaners in the chapter on humor in his Critique of Judgment. Kant was so East Prussian that his hometown, Konisberg, is now the Russian city of Kaliningrad. Here's one of the knee slappers Kant included in his book. So there's this guy who's hiring mourners to weep in a funeral procession. But they're not looking mournful enough, and he's worried he won't get his money's worth of hired grief. So desperately, he says, look, guys, you've got to cry more convincingly. He takes out his wallet and says, look, here, I'll even up your fee hands over some additional cash. But, wait for it, that just makes the hired mourners happier, and they can't hardly cry at all no more. 
Oh, man, I'm, I'm dying here. I, that one gets me every time. So, see, NATO? Be like Immanuel Kant. Don't let the joke gap get any huger than it is. It's not that hard. It wouldn't kill you to toss a few knock-knock jokes our way. It wouldn't break your budget. And besides, they'd arguably be more combat effective than an F-35. <laughs> Just kidding, Air Force. In the meantime, we'll go back to watching Russian sitcoms. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben, welcome back. Uh, interesting story we've got to talk about here today. This is uh, came up in, in Forbes. Uh, the title of the article is, Yes, Cops Are Now Opening iPhones with Dead People's Fingerprints. Yeah, I uh, have to admit I didn't realize this was possible until I, I saw this article, but apparently there have been one or two instances where a potential perpetrator of a criminal act, or in one case a terrorist act, uh, has been killed in an incident, and then in order to gain more information for an investigation, they try and use that dead person's fingerprint to unlock uh, an iPhone. So obviously that might not work in all cases. I'm not an expert in the decomposition of the human hand, so right. I, I don't know whether the fingerprint actually is going to be able to open the phone. I think in this case they weren't really able to get any uh, valuable information. But it does present a really interesting legal problem. So once you die, you don't really, as a dead person, have any expectation of privacy. Right. Um, your body might be interred, but you don't have the same sort of sense of Fourth Amendment protection that you do when you're alive. Who owns the remains? So a relative or the next of kin might claim that they sort of own the reins of your identity. But in a, from, a, from a legal sense, in terms of Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, that person is not entitled to make a privacy claim about uh, a dead person. Hmm. In terms of somebody else opening the phone, you also forfeit your legal expectation of privacy if you've allowed somebody to access a device. So even if you have no anticipation that you're going to be part of a criminal investigation, part of a terrorist investigation, and you die, if you've given your wife uh, access to your phone via her fingerprint or via, uh, via some other method, 
you've also forfeited your expectation of privacy and you lose uh, control of that information. You know, it potentially could be problematic in a scenario where there is protected information on a phone. It's the protected information of somebody that's still alive, but it was a dead person who actually gained access to that phone, uh, and that information could be compromised. Well, let me ask you this. So suppose, uh, you know, on my deathbed, I, I say to my lovely and talented wife, no matter what happens, don't let anyone get access to this phone. You know, you have access to it, and you know the passcode, but no matter what happens to me, uh, don't let anyone access this phone, and I have willed this phone to you. So now I die, and now the phone is my lovely wife's property. Go, Ben. What happens now? I would, uh, I would take the phone <laughs> if I were your wife. And <laughs> because she probably could assert her own interest uh, in some of the data stored on, on her phone, I would make sure it doesn't get into the property of law enforcement. Because if law enforcement got the phone and wanted to find incriminating information on you or your wife, I don't see how they would not have legal authorization to use your fingerprints. Now... <laughs> Because the phone used to belong to me. Yes. And that's their interest. Yes. Now, by taking possession of the phone, your wife now has a property interest in that phone. I think it would be far more reasonable for to expect the government to uh, need to get some sort of warrant uh, mm. to operate the phone, especially because your wife now has some sort of proprietary interest. Her information might be on the phone. But if there's some sort of terrible accident, your wife's not there... Nobody knows about her interest in the phone. In, in terms of your interest, as a your privacy interest as a dead person, those have been forfeited uh, the moment that you die. I see. So, yeah, it's sort of an absurd uh, attenuation of the third-party doctrine, getting uh, forfeiting a reasonable expectation of privacy through, of course, death. I mean, I guess this could be, yeah, death. This <laughs> yeah. could be complicated, but generally right. Right. Not, not your choice. Right. Uh, although in one of these circumstances, I think it was a suicide bombing. But yeah, it's there's generally no privacy for the dead, which I think is an exact quote in this Forbes article. Yeah, interesting. All right, Ben Yellen, as always, thanks for filling us in. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Cyberwire. 